please put your hands together for Noah Guyverson. Hello. Hello, welcome. Welcome, everyone. Thank you so much for coming out to a special Brain Awareness Week edition of Fax Machine. My name is Noah Guyverson, and I am one-third of Fax Machine, a show by and for people who are curious about everything, but especially the things that make them laugh. Now, as you may already know, our theme for tonight's show is neuroscience, and this is very exciting for me because I am a neuroscientist. Give it up for neuroscience. Thank you. Yes, I'm very proud. Um, but sometimes I wonder, am I really a neuroscientist? When I tell my friends and family that I'm a neuroscientist, their questions always presume that I know something <laughs> about cognition or human behavior. Um, and I feel compelled to backpedal and tell them things like, okay, well technically what I am is a biochemist who studies like proteins that are in the brain. Um, and maybe that's not fair to me. Neuroscience is, you know, a big tent. And there's a lot of ways to study really important questions about the brain. But I can't help but feel a little jealous uh, when other neuroscientists get to do cool shit like this. If you don't know what this is, this beautiful technique is called brainbow. Essentially, by expressing like random different ratios of red, green, and blue fluorescent proteins in the nervous system, it allows you to distinguish tightly packed individual neurons um, from their neighbors. And this had a major impact on the effort to map connections between uh, neurons in the brain. And God, it would be cool not just to know how to do this, but just like to have a reason to. Um, <laughs> and since I don't know. I, I'm feeling a little self-conscious uh, about my neuroscience bona fides, so I've invited two real neuroscientists to join us for tonight's show. Leslie Seibner and Dr. Devin Collins will be out here in just a moment. And finally, you know, when you put on a show like this, you never know what the energy of the audience is going to be. So I figured, I'm out here first. Why not do something so vulnerable, so unironic, so heartbreakingly earnest that you can't help but root for us. Please welcome to the stage, Rose McCathrin. Why can't I? 
please everyone welcome to the stage Anne Costa, Leslie Sagner, and Dr. Devin Collins. Once again to Fax Machine, all you need is Loeb. My name is Noah Guyverson, and I am joined by two neuroscientists and science communicators, Leslie Seibner and Dr. Devin Collins. I am also joined, as always, by Emily Costa, who is not a neuroscientist at all. Sup? <laughs> Instead, Em is inexplicably a lung scientist. Yeah! <laughs> no. Um, so, well, welcome to the stage, everyone. I mean, Em, of course, you've been here many times, but Leslie and Devin, welcome, and I'm so glad you could join us. Leslie, I'm gonna ask you first. Um, I'm really concerned that I'm not a real neuroscientist, and I'm sorry if any of you mainly do Western blood neuroscience as well, but <laughs> you should all be concerned for this answer. What, what do you do? Okay. <laughs> Hello, this is on, excellent. Um, I'm so excited to be here with everybody. I am truly wowed by the vision of everybody on stage and beautiful singing. Thank you. Um, but what I do uh, is I do something called um, systems neuroscience. And so neuroscience can kind of be divided into this different hierarchy where you have cellular molecular neuroscience, which it sounds like maybe that's what you're up to with your Western blots. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, think, I feel like cellular molecular neuroscience might be like a pejorative term. I, <laughs> I did not mean it I'm, that way. I might just be very, very self-conscious, but I'll, I'll take your word for it. Um, and then what I do is I do systems level neuroscience looking at uh, specifically motor learning. So that's the process of how you're able to learn very dexterous skills um, with your hands or with your legs or all these different things. And specifically, I work with mice. Uh, and so I use this technique called two-photon calcium imaging. Give it up for two-photon <laughs> calcium <laughs> Thank you, thank you. Um, and so I, I basically am able to take these videos that look like lightning flashing in the brain, um, and you get hundreds of cells at one time, and then you're able to do all this lovely computational type neuroscience by taking all the activity from the individual neuron sets at one time um, and seeing how that activity changes as you learn um, a motor skill. So I teach mice how to play with this little joystick with their <laughs> forepaw. Um, and they're very cute, they get very good at it. Um, and yeah, that's, that's what I do. Amazing, amazing. <laughs> so, uh, Dr. Devin Collins, um, you are the only person on this stage who has actually gotten their PhD. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, give it up. So I'm gonna be sort of emphasizing doctor all night, because we- I, I love it. I love it. That's great. <laughs> Dr. Devin Collins, PhD. Uh, would you tell us a little bit about the research that got you that uh, doctor in uh, neuroscience PhD? Yeah. First, though, I just want to, like, a tip of the hat because I've done calcium imaging and it fucking sucks. Give it up for calcium so two-photon imaging. It is so hard. That is the, the technique that you have to drink on tonight. Anytime calcium imaging is mentioned, <laughs> fortunately, I think I missed that because I think that, that's the, probably the last time. But, um... <laughs> Go ahead, Devin. What, um, yeah. So, oh God, my, my PhD feels like forever and a day ago. Um, so I'm a behavioral pharmacologist, um, and I was 
I, when I started my PhD, it was kind of at the peak of the current opioid epidemic. So I was really interested in prescription pills and like what's different about them, if anything. Um, so I spent a lot of time getting mice and rats high. <laughs> uh, we, we like, so my lab is really good at a lot of like different behavioral assays and one of them is called intravenous self-administration. And so what we would do is we, it's a little gruesome, but stick with me, not super gruesome. Uh, we'd stick a catheter into a mouse's jugular and we teach them to like administer drugs to themselves, wow. just like a human would do. Um, and so we hooked them up to the little bag of oxycodone or heroin or some other opioid or maybe even cocaine. Uh, and they press a little lever. They're given the choice between the jug and saline. And my job was to kind of figure out like, okay, what's their pattern of administration? If they have like genetic differences, so we use a lot of like transgenic mice, mm -hmm. um, you know, figuring out like how those different mouse strains self-administer to think about like individual differences in mice, but then, you know, translate those to humans, hopefully. Um, I did a lot of stuff, some of it worked, some of it didn't, but uh, a lot of drugs and a lot of mice. <laughs> Thank you. So you did a PhD. Yeah, yeah I exactly, did a PhD, yeah. Um, also, I want to mention, so you may notice that you saw some pictures tonight. Rob Frawley is, was not able to join us tonight. He is a, uh, a very busy science educator for BioBus. Anybody know BioBus? Wonderful, wonderful organization taking a bus full of awesome uh, like uh, microscopes and samples to schools all around the city and I, I think in other cities too sometimes, right? Um, it's a wonderful, wonderful organization. You should volunteer and or donate lots of money at uh, www.biobus. <laughs> org, <laughs> And I just wanted to ask Devin, so um, of course Rob is an um, extremely busy science educator. He's a lead community scientist at Biobus, so of course he was too busy to come here tonight. Um, do you, where do you work and what is your title? Uh, so I work for an organization called Biobus. Oh. Uh, <laughs> and my title, get this, lead community scientist. Whoa. <laughs> I'm starting to think Rob wasn't really busy tonight. <laughs> it is almost 10 o'clock. What children was he teaching? <laughs> We're gonna have to investigate that. But in the meantime, to share tonight's first story about neuroscience, oh, wait, <laughs> sorry, I'm forgetting someone. Um, M. Hello. Why did you choose the wrong graduate program? The wrong program? Yeah. Well, I mean, field of study. Someone had to do it. Yeah. <laughs> Um, uh, why don't you tell us a little <laughs> something about the lungs? Um, or I'm sorry, w what you study it with the lungs. Oh, so to really liven the mood, I study lung cancer. Give it! No, <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, let's not, let's not do that. Um, but yeah, I uh, study lung cancer, um, non-small cell lung cancer, and a very specific subset of it where patients have mutations to three genes. We don't really understand how these mutant genes operate together, but we do know that clinically, these patients have really aggressive disease. So what I'm trying to do is model these mutant genes and study them and understand them and hopefully maybe find a way to target them with therapy. Amazing. That's what I'm up to. Amazing. <laughs> I am, of course, completely fucking kidding. That is amazing, uh, and the lungs are extraordinary, but uh, we are gonna keep Thank you. ragging on the lungs all night. Um, <laughs> So, for real, to share tonight's first story about neuroscience, please welcome to the mic, Leslie Seibner.
that's me. <laughs> I'm Leslie Savner. Hello. <laughs> um, okay, so I'm so, so excited to be here with all of you today, especially during Brain Awareness Week, great week of the whole year. Um, and so we're going to start off. I want to ask everybody in this room, we can see this picture of, you know, a crusty lecture hall at some undescript, indescript university. Um, and I want to ask you, do you see anything that's missing from this picture? If you do, just like shout it out, please. I'll give you like 10 seconds. Okay, besides people, thank you. <laughs> besides people, <laughs> for me, I am a left-handed individual. And so whenever I walk into a room like this, I always am looking for a left-handed desk for myself. Um, and so they're usually situated on the aisle. Um, as you can see, they do not exist here. It, this is a very tough room. I have um, taken tests when I was uh, an undergrad in rooms just like this, and it was horrendous. Um, and so as a lefty, there are all of these um, truly annoying things that you have to put up with all the time. Um, this world was not made for lefties. It's a righties world, and <laughs> I just exist in it. Give it up for righties. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, I'm not alone in this affliction in the world. Um, roughly 10% of the population uh, are lefties. Are there any lefties in the crowd? Please raise your hand. Yes, thank you, thank you, thank you. Instant kinship, thank you. <laughs> um, and so just to give you a little bit of background, we're going to do some etymology, or what I like to say, leftimology. Incredible. Thank you. Um, and so left-handed, as we use it today, is actually derived from the word lift from Old English, which actually means weak. And, you know, I'm not that weak. I can do a pull-up, so, what? you know, not, not bragging. <laughs> um, and then in other languages, it evolved also with very negative connotations. In French, gauche, meaning awkward, clumsy, or in this day and age, dreadfully, you know, unfashionable. Um, but the oldest one that I really like uh, is sinister, um, which comes from Latin, which means unlucky. But as we know, this has really taken on a um, horrible, horrible, um, meaning in, in this day's world. Uh, and so it's, you know, evil and very, very <laughs> wicked. Um, but what's hilarious is that sinister is actually still commonly used all the time, every single day, um, you're, uh, especially in the medical field. So being left-handed is technically called sinistrality. So that's tough. Um, you know, um, that uh, I think we talked about this. That the uh, the um, like coat of arms of Australia is like because in heraldry they use like sinister to mean like on the left side and dexterous to mean on the right side. So the coat of arms on Australia of Australia has a sinister emu. <laughs> I mean that sounds pretty cool. Yeah. I mean I Rad. you know I love being a lefty. This is this is building to that. Um, but along with all these words, so much stigma has arisen that there are all these different common day phrases that are really. Um, Anti-left-handed is what I'll say. So we have two left feet, which is being extremely clumsy, as you know. Left-handed, back in the 19th century, actually um, was referred to as homosexuals. Um, wow. Born from the left hand, really intense, uh, an illegitimate child. Uh, Left-footers, um, back um, in the holy wars, the religious wars, Catholics or Protestants were called left-footers, depending on what majority <laughs> area you were <laughs> residing in. <laughs> Um, and the left-hand path is obviously the devil's path or black magic. Because yes. um, if you really think about it, righties, they get all of these really great things associated with them. And really, the original right-hand man is Jesus. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> Jesus, um, in many, many famous depictions of God and Jesus in paintings, this is a lovely um, painting by Velazquez, uh, but you can see Jesus depicted on the right hand of God. Um, so, you know, lefties 
we have like the devil on the left side of God. <laughs> so that's me. Um, and, <laughs> and, and because of all of this bad reputation about being left-handed, um, there's a long history of left to right-hand conversion throughout the world. Um, even to this day and age, as recently as in 2007, a study done in Taiwan showed that 53% of left-handed individuals were actually converted to being right-handed. That's really tough. Um, but this type of conversion can actually lead to things like dyslexia, stuttering, and a lot of emotional distress. And I think the most famous depiction of this that maybe some people have seen here um, is from the King's Speech. <laughs> King George VI was born a left-hander, um, was converted to being righty, and as now a Oscar-winning stutter, um, <laughs> evolved from that individual. Thank you, Colin Firth. And so, you know, even though there's this really bad reputation, um, there's also some really fabulous, influential, powerful lefties in the world, which I'm proud to be a member of. Um, so we have Leonardo da Vinci, people like Mozart, Barack Obama, um, uh, Marie Curie, um, and so many other fantastic people. You can just like screw, uh, like look at all of these things and see that these people, sorry about that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, screw all these people, they're fantastic. Um, if you're able to screw them, you're very lucky. Um, and so really now we're, uh, that was really a long tangent because I never get to just rant about being a lefty and how unfair everything is. Um, but to my delight in 2020, there was um, something that came to my attention that combined three very important aspects of my identity, being a left-handed individual, being a woman, and being a neuroscientist. And that was in a paper called Human Olfaction Without Apparent Olfactory Bulbs. Whoa. This came from the Wiseman Institute. Um, and so How? In, um, <clears throat> in this study, um, I'm gonna talk to you about it, um, but first I'm gonna give you a little bit like olfaction 101. So olfaction is your ability to smell. Um, and so this all starts with different um, smells out in the world. We're in New York. Maybe there's some, you know, hot garbage, some fresh <laughs> urine. Um, maybe if you're lucky, there's actually like freshly baked bagels. Um, and as you inhale, these odorants flood inside your nasal cavity. And your nasal cavity is lined with the olfactory epithelium. Um, and in that epithelium, there are the ends of olfactory receptor neurons that when they come in contact, with these odorants, they become activated, depending on if there's a match between the odorant and the specific type of olfactory receptor neuron. There are millions of them. Um, and so then this is where all this smell information jumps into your brain from your nose. They get activated. These olfactory receptor neurons get activated, send action potentials into your brain, and get to the olfactory bulb. So this is what this paper um, is studying. Um, and so in the human, if you take an MRI scan mm -hmm. of the human brain, you can see um, the olfactory bulb really just looks like these two dangly balls. Uh, yes. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> Caught me. Caught me laughing at that. <laughs> um, and, and so they're very, very apparent, easily um, identifiable. Um, and so in this study, classic science, they were not trying to do anything with olfaction. They were just scanning individuals for another random study. And so this accidental discovery, they scanned a left-handed woman um, and found that something was missing. Like the dangly balls weren't there. Um, <laughs> And so then they're like, wow, that's really bizarre because this individual, she didn't report any effects to her ability to smell. She, you know, ex existed her entire life thinking I can smell everything the same as anyone, didn't even think there was an issue. And there wasn't. 
Um, and so what they ended up doing is they ended up searching for more and more left-handed women, because we're awesome. <laughs> um, and um, before they even got to the 20th individual to scan, they found a second lefty woman who had no olfactory bulb, but had no recollection of any issues with her ability to smell. That's, that's crazy. <laughs> um, and so what they ended up doing is they dove into this research by comparing now an individual who had a normal intact olfactory bulb, um, the two lefties who did not have olfactory bulbs, and then an individual who had something called congenital anosmia. And so this individual was born without an olfactory bulb um, and cannot smell. So being anosmic, um, there are many anosmic people in the world, and they unfortunately cannot delight in the sense that um, permeate through the world. Um, and so then um, what they ended up doing is they were first just looking at different areas of the brain and seeing, okay, does this area of the brain look normal even though there's no olfactory bulb? So a few main areas that are associated with olfaction. Um, we have the olfactory bulb. This is from a different um, view. Um, and that you can see that they basically send their projections through the olfactory tract and they get to the cortex. There are many different areas associated with olfaction, but one is the piriform cortex. Um, and they saw that the anatomy of the bulbless women um, were uh, exactly the same. There was no difference. While the anosmic individual, the person who could not smell, um, her, um, she did not have an olfactory tract. Um, and then they looked at representation, which is basically putting them not in an MRI, but an fMRI, or a functional MRI scanner, um, and gave them things to smell to see if their brains lit up in the same areas and in the same way. And sure enough, the women who did not have olfactory bulbs still had different cortical areas that were lighting up to smells, um, even though they, did not, um, they didn't have the olfactory bulb, which is, as you remember, like the first site in the brain where you're supposed to have all of this olfaction information coming in. And so then, my personal favorite behavioral test that they did, they did something called sniffin' sticks. <laughs> <laughs> it's not even, not even a G, just N and an apostrophe, but sniffin' sticks. Um, and using this behavioral test specifically for your sense of smell, you get this readout called TDI. Um, and that has three different components to it. One is threshold. So how much of a smell do you have to be given before you say, oh, I think I smell something? Um, and then there is identification, which is saying, okay, I'm giving you this smell, what is it? Um, and then discrimination, I give you many smells and you have to tell me um, which each smell actually is. Um, and so, you know, unsurprisingly at this point, um, the two individuals who had no olfactory bulbs had, you know, the same scores as the um, regular person who had the olfactory bulbs intact. And so in this graph, you can see the three of them floating up there at the top with high TDI scores. And then the individual with congenital anosmia is actually like way down. And this makes sense. Like that person can't smell anything. Of course, they can't have, you know, any high scores in, in this type of test. Um, and so really, what they did next is they looked for just more scans of left-handed women to see, okay, is this just like a crazy phenomenon that we stumbled upon or is this a real thing that's happening? Um, and what they did is they went and looked into um, the Human Connectome Project, which just has um, lots, of F, lots of brain scans um, that they were able to access and look at. And um, basically looking at the data, they found that there were more left-handed women who did not have olfactory bulbs, but whose olfaction was not impacted. And so extrapolating from that data, 
they estimate that roughly 4.25% of left-handed women are able oh. to smell without olfactory bulbs. And that's about, yeah, 32.9 million individuals in the wow. world who just don't have this area of the brain, um, but are, you know, going about life totally normal. And so they had some ideas about how that might happen. Um, they have some thoughts that maybe the olfactory bulb migrated um, or was reshaped in some way. Um, they thought that maybe it was just too small to be seen on the scan, but I don't think that that's really a possibility. Um, compensation, there are many other sensory modalities that we use in our everyday life um, to just get around. So maybe there was some other way that they were figuring out these smells and having experiences that they truly believed were smells. Um, or there's some sort of unique coding mechanism that makes them able to uh, smell without having the olfactory bulb. But my personal favorite is I think that we're just all <laughs> witches, like left-handed women. <laughs> we're crazy. We can just do cool stuff. Um, and so personally for me as a uh, neuroscientist, I am just like desperate and clamoring to get my own brain scanned to know <laughs> if I have this or not. Do I have an olfactory bulb? I don't know. I think I can smell fine. Like I, I really do. Um, but unfortunately, the sad tale is that in so many um, human MRI studies, which I have reached out to people, my friends, who are running these studies, I say, please let me in your study. <laughs> I desperately want to get a scan of my brain. And they always turn me away because left-handers are excluded from these wow. experiments. Wow. Ridiculous. Boo. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> we're just so left out all the time. Keep it going for Leslie Seibner. Now for the second neuroscience story of the night, please welcome to the mic, Dr. Devin Collins, PhD. All right, y'all, I uh, am a man of the future, <laughs> so I have my notes on my phone. Uh, but since there are people looking at me, I've forgotten how to use it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool. All right, so, oh, that's my face. Yeah. <laughs> um, I have less hair now, but that's okay. Aww. All right. Oh, no, 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 wait. Okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so um, I've got a couple jobs. Uh, not only am I neuroscience, uh, a neuroscience researcher uh, and a lead community science at, a scientist at Biobus, um, in my other life, I am a neuroscience teacher at a school that's actually like down the street uh, here on the Lower East Side. Um, and at the beginning of every semester, what I do is kind of an embarrassingly like brief overview of select neuroscience history topics. Uh, I talk about people like Phineas Gage. Give it up for Phineas Gage. I don't know. Uh, Phineas Gage. I talk about Paul Broca. I talk about the OG, like Ramoni Cajal. Mm -hmm. uh, look yeah. him up. Yeah. Uh, but what I realized in getting ready for tonight is that um, I somewhat shamefully leave out uh, pharmacology history. And in my other other life, being a behavioral pharmacologist, uh, that's that kind of sucks. So I thought I would make it up uh, to <laughs> to all the behavioral pharmacologists out there. Uh, by telling you a little bit about the history of a drug uh, that has occupied a huge portion of my own professional life uh, and is like weighed heavy on human history. <laughs> so here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna talk about heroin. So you can't talk about the history of heroin without talking about the story of this humble flower, Papaver somniferum. Uh, did I say that right? Yes. 
uh, or more commonly known as the opium poppy. Uh, and poppies have given us a lot of cool things, um, or at least interesting things, one of them being the delicious, delicious lemon poppy seed muffin. Mm -hmm. uh, but mm -hmm. also, uh, something not so cool, but also really useful, uh, is opium. So little, little column A, little column B. Little column A, little column B, it's yeah. great, you know? <laughs> So uh, what you see on the right is a milky latex. It's technically a latex um, coming from the seed pod of, um, of the opium poppy. Uh, and humans really love opium, uh, and we have like thought about it for a really long time. Um, opium like preparations show up in like ancient Greek manuscripts. Um, speaking of the Greeks, uh, Homer kind of put in, in the Odyssey, uh, there's a drug called Nepenthe. Uh, and it means the drug of like anti-sorrow or uh, the drug of forgetfulness or bliss. Uh, and Helen gives a mixture of wine and Nepenthe to Odysseus's men when he pieces out and they're really sad about it. Uh, and then of course, and of course keeping with our like Secret. Our Wizard of Oz. Secret theme. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Not so secret theme. Increasingly yeah, less yeah. secret. So <laughs> who could forget uh, Dorothy's uh, nice sleep aid given to her very graciously by the Wicked Witch of the West, uh, a field of poppies. Uh, so humans really, really fucking love opium. Um, and uh, it turns out that it's because there's some really fun magic ingredients in opium. Uh, one of them being morphine. It's like the chief active ingredient um, in, in the opi opium, so it's doing like the lion's share of the work. But there are a couple of other things. There's codeine, which you've probably heard of. Um, but what you might not have heard of is this other thing called thebane, um, which is like naturally occurring in opium, but it's not as fun as codeine and morphine. Um, it's not great for getting you high, but it is really good at giving you convulsions um, at the right dose. So if you're into that, Thebane's for you, yeah. uh, but if not, don't worry. It's a, it's actually not that useless. We can chemically convert it uh, in some really like useful painkillers like oxycodone um, and something called naloxone, which is used to reverse opioid overdoses. So Thebane is is not a jerk. It's just misunderstood. <laughs> Relatable. Okay, so <laughs> so uh, much like Thebane, actually, opium and its derivatives have uh, kind of a dark side. I did a search for, literally, a Google search for evil poppy today, <laughs> and that's what came up, and the internet will always provide. I'm so happy. I was going to say that's sinister, but I know better now. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> oh. um, so if you're like me, um, and you, well, maybe you're not like me, I don't know, but I'll find <laughs> out. But uh, there have been a lot of folks who have been really interested in that dark side, um, and one of the most important, as we're talking about heroin, uh, is this guy, Charles Romley Adler Wright. And he was a chemist working at St. Mary's College uh, in London in the 1870s. And he was really interested uh, in the problem of, of morphine addiction. And so uh, he really didn't like this, like this problem of addiction. So he was looking for alternatives <laughs> to morphine I'm not funny. Okay. Uh, no, uh, <laughs> he was looking for alternatives to morphine that would be safe and non-addictive. Um, spoiler alert, he didn't find it, but he did come up with something really interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, so it turns out that not only Thebane is a really great starting point for making new opioid drugs. Uh, so he started with uh, morphine, and he stumbled upon this process called acetylation. Basically, he boiled anhydrous, uh, excuse me, mm, 
anhydrous uh, morphine with a compound called acetic anhydride. What you see is these little, <laughs> these little groups on this morphine backbone, those are acetyl groups. And so he named it diacetylmorphine. Really great name. <laughs> he made this new compound and he was really interested in seeing what it did, so he sent it to uh, a, a colleague of his named F.M. Pierce and he injected this into young dogs and rabbits. Uh, and I'm not going to read this whole thing, but I have a couple of highlights here that I want to share with you. Uh, so the effects of diacetylmorphine in these rabbits and dogs was great prostration, sleepiness, a slight tendency to vomiting, but only in some cases. <laughs> and my personal favorite, a diminution of the temperature of the rectum of about <laughs> four degrees. I just, <laughs> I love that it's about four degrees. Wait. Yeah, uh, great question. Celsius or Fahrenheit? <laughs> Ooh, that makes a big difference, yeah. doesn't it? I mean, it does. I mean these were Maybe. men of science, I'm so I'm gonna sure. guess centigrade, <laughs> but I don't know. Wow, that's a <laughs> So, um, so they, they, they ended up, uh, what they ended up with was instead of a drug that was like less potent or uh, ostensibly safer than morphine, they ended up with something that's about two times uh, stronger than morphine. So they didn't find what they were looking for, so they largely like abandoned, um, they abandoned diacetylmorphine. And it kind of disappeared until about 23 years later in Germany, another chemist named uh, Felix Hoffman working for Bayer uh, was looking for ways to isolate or make codeine out of opium, um, and maybe a couple of other things. Uh, and little known fact, or maybe you know this, I don't know, uh, <laughs> he is the guy who also invented aspirin, which is acetyl salicylic acid. So he really loved putting acetyl groups on things, <laughs> uh, as was his want, <laughs> right? Uh, and so it's no wonder that he stumbled upon the same method for acetylating morphine uh, that Wright had come up with about a quarter of a century earlier. Uh, the Bayer group, um, they, they also kind of found like it was about two times more potent than morphine. It wasn't what they were, you know, what mm -hmm. it definitely wasn't codeine, uh, and it wasn't, uh, definitely wasn't like less addictive than morphine, uh, but they didn't care. Uh, they slapped a brand name on it and gave us the name heroin. And they marketed- Wait, wait a minute. They were looking for a less addictive drug than opium. Yes. And they created heroin. <laughs> yes. I, they wouldn't let me graduate if I brought that in. Like, <laughs> <laughs> it was a different time, man. Yeah, they didn't. They didn't have Western blots. They didn't have what? <laughs> How can you even do science without Western blots and two photon calcium imaging? So they marketed the shit out of heroin, um, and you can actually <laughs> see like a couple of their ads here. One on the left is like this, like just a little insert, you know, for like getting information about heroin, and you can see aspirin there too. Um, but they also had this, re they, like, they were just really into marketing in Spanish language uh, to like for kids, <laughs> like for cough syrup in like Spanish speaking countries. It's like, I found like Jeez. five of these things uh, and they're all worse than the, like each one is worse than the last. Um, but I just want to point out this kid's eyes. <laughs> <laughs> like he, he does not care about his cough anymore. <laughs> Is that right. like a bottle of Jägermeister a little bit? It's kind of, it does, that's what it looks like. Oh, no. yeah. yes. All right, so. Mm. That Should I be proud of that? All right. <laughs> uh, it, we can share our shit. Hey. 
<laughs> Stick around after the show, everybody. Hey. <laughs> All right. So, um, so that is basically that's how we got heroin, right? But why is it why is it a lousy substitute for morphine? All right. So, like many other drugs, I guess like all other drugs, uh, when morphine or heroin or opium enters the body, goes through a couple <laughs> different processes. You got to absorb it. It's got to move through the body to different places, get where it's going, um, and it has. <laughs> it's metabolized, and maybe you found my favorite part of this. <laughs> it's like the it's it so reminds tidy. Me, reminds me of the wombats. Wombats so have yeah, yeah uh, like wombats cubic have poops. cuboid poops, yeah. and this guy's got triangle poops. Great. I don't see anything wrong with this. It's amazing. So, <laughs> so uh, the basically right the. Do, oh, I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry. I can't help myself. <laughs> do do or do not. There is no triangle. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. There we go. <laughs> so uh, basically the takeaway is that the drug's got to get to where it's going, and it's got to, you know, it's subject to a couple of different processes. So one of the places, or ostensibly the most important place that uh, morphine and heroin and other drugs go, is the brain. Um, and you can see here, this is actually, this is um, a I don't want to go too far into it. This is uh, showing you the binding sites for morphine and other opioid drugs in the brain. And they're kind of concentrated <laughs> in these little areas um, that you'll see in a second are really important for the way that we process pleasure, among other things. Uh, and the thing about heroin is that it's really fucking good at getting into your brain. So it turns out those little acetyl groups help it bypass this natural barrier that exists between your blood and your brain, and it's aptly named the blood-brain barrier. Mm. And it's formed by these different cells in uh, br around brain capillaries that cover and form these really tight junctions in between, uh, in between themselves. Mm. And are in between each other? Yes. Yeah. So that they block things from leaking into the blood from the brain that shouldn't go into the blood. And vice versa, they keep things from the blood that shouldn't be in the brain. Your brain's really important. It's a very privileged space. And you can actually see that right here in this uh, really cool fluorescent uh, microscope image. The green is all of these different, uh, they're called astrocytes that wrap themselves around uh, the capillary, which is this like black space here. So that's where the blood would be. And then inside is, on the other side of that is brain tissue. So it really forms a barrier that you can literally see. And the thing about those two acetyl groups on the heroin is that it helps pull, it makes it really what's called lipophilic. It loves fat. And your cell membranes are made of fat. And so it just goes right through, whereas morphine would have a little bit of a tougher time. Also gets actively pumped in, but we won't talk about that today. <laughs> <laughs> so what I've got here to kind of illustrate that is that actually these really old papers, um, not really old, but they're like not super new. Um, so on the left, <laughs> what you're looking at is the concentration of, in the blood of heroin and its metabolites after an IV injection. And on the right is the amount in the brain. And what ends up happening that's a little different than morphine is heroin gets into the brain really, really fast. And inst well, almost instantly, within a couple of minutes, it's converted into a couple of things. This chemical in the middle here called 6-monoacetylmorphine, so it takes one of the acetyl groups off, and it actually turns into morphine itself. So instead of just getting a little bit of morphine, you get a shit ton of morphine hammering away oh. on the brain after just a couple of minutes. So it gets in there within the first like three to 15 minutes, then you start building up this huge amount of monoacetylmorphine, which is really active, and then over time you get a steady amount of morphine building up. So you end up getting more morphine than you would with just morphine alone. And that 
has uh, some really important effects on this neurotransmitter system here called dopamine, which has a ton of different functions in the brain, including movement and habit formation, motivation and reward, and planning uh, in a place called the prefrontal cortex. Uh, it's really important for things like, <laughs> <laughs> oh, my, my gifts are gone, oh no. It's really important for things like, uh, like pleasurable things like eating, positive social interaction, <laughs> listening to things like music. Michelle was listening to music and like just absolutely bopping out. <laughs> uh, or um, some time with your special person, something like that. Uh, and dopamine is really important for kind of teaching your, your brain about what's good. So you get a little bump of dopamine when something great happens. Your brain knows, we should do that again. That was really cool. <laughs> Drugs, however, especially heroin and morphine, just take that and like ramp it the fuck up. So you end up getting this like unnatural dopamine curve uh, and it kind of disrupts all of that biology. So that hammering away with the, with the morphine really uh, disrupts all that brain biology. So the last thing I wanna talk to you about is just uh, what does that look like for behavior? So this is a paper um, by actually um, this person Creek here with, uh, with Vincent Dole and Marie Nicewander Creek was my PhD advisor. So they actually <laughs> were really interested in the problem of opioid addiction as well in the 1960s uh, with the heroin epidemic in New York. Uh, and so they looked at the typical pattern of heroin uh, injection in users in New York and they found that across the day uh, they were injecting multiple times to kind of titrate and keep that amount of heroin and morphine in the system at kind of a constant level. Uh, and it was that up and down that really causes um, those, those problems uh, with the brain and the changes in function. Um, here they are right there. This is Vincent Dole, Marie Nicewander, and um, the late Mary Jean Creek, uh, who was my thesis advisor. Um, and I don't want to leave you on a bummer. Uh, they didn't just like, you know, look at people injecting drugs. They also figured out a solution. Um, by finding a couple of other chemicals, they went through an old library of chemicals uh, that were actually was actually seized after the Second World War. Uh, so Germany gave us methadone as well as and, and as well as uh, Bayer's heroin, mm -hmm. uh, and they found methadone. Uh, and methadone is really cool because what it does is it kind of flattens out that curve. So it gets rid of drug craving, it uh, and it makes it easier to manage the symptoms of a heroin addiction, among others. Um, than just you know talk therapy alone or just trying to quit cold turkey. So I hope that you have seen uh, that heroin has a really sordid history um, and that the poppy has given us a lot of things um, and just looking around at a couple of different chemicals and kind of fucking around and finding out um, can <laughs> lead to some tragedy but also lead to some great things. So yeah, thanks. Keep it going for Devin Collins. So, for our third and final neuroscience story tonight, please welcome a breath of fresh air. The wind beneath my lungs. <laughs> Lung scientist, M. Costa. Yeah, I heard what you said before. Ooh, what's that? Mm. Interesting. Hear that? Uh, that was 40 hertz, the audio frequency. 
And that sound, along with a much more pleasant one, could one day alleviate epilepsy by altering the music in our brains. Mm. So what, oh there's my face. Uh, so <laughs> what do I mean by music in our brains? Well, our brains make music, sort of. At the very least, they have rhythm. You may have heard the phrase, neurons that wire together, fire together, and it's true. Neurons that operate <laughs> Oh, oh. <laughs> it's like, this is just off the rails if I'm already wrong. Okay, so, it's <laughs> so what is it again? <laughs> Neurons that wire together, wire together, fire together. Neuroscientists, yeah, this is a pleasant. real thing, right? Yeah. It's the other way around. It's Flip wire it. together, wire together. Take All right. Leave her alone. Yeah. <laughs> She's I'm only a long scientist. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. We are sticklers for accuracy as a fax machine. Perfect. Neurons that fire together, wire together, Ooh. and it's true. <laughs> Neurons that operate together in a network electrically fire together. And this coordinated firing in multiple networks results in repeating patterns or oscillations of electrical activity known as brain waves. So there are five kinds of brain waves, uh, and they're named for their frequency. So we have delta, theta, alpha, beta, and gamma. And these waves are oscillating in our brains at various times and in various places. And we measure brain waves using electroencephalography, whew, yes, or EEG, <laughs> um, <laughs> through electrodes placed on a person's scalp or sometimes even inside of their brains. So brain waves are associated with specific neural processes, and we think that synchronization of different brain waves helps different parts of our brain communicate with each other. So, for example, uh, gamma and theta waves, which both occur in the hippocampus and in the frontal neocortex, have been observed to sync up, and we think that might have roles in cognition and memory. We've also noticed, embrace yourselves, that our brain waves sync up to external stimuli that occur at similar frequencies. So, for example, flickering lights, music or sounds, even rhythmic finger tapping. And this means that we can consciously expose ourselves to rhythmic stimuli to alter our brain activity. Okay, Ooh. so this is first of all, totally ridiculous, <laughs> <laughs> but it also has real potential to treat or at least reduce symptoms in patients with neurological diseases. And there have been lots of studies over the past few decades exploring this potential. So I'll give you one example from a lab at MIT, looking at treating Alzheimer's with light that flickers in a gamma frequency. So gamma waves are significantly reduced in the brains of Alzheimer's patients. And applying this light therapy in mouse models of Alzheimer's, cleared protein aggregates or plaques that are a hallmark of Alzheimer's, restored memory and learning ability, and literally prevented neuron death. And that's what's shown here. So these are images of mouse brains with different cell types and different colors. And the main thing to note is this black, oh, there she is, is this black <laughs> gaping hole um, where brain should be. Um, and it's only in the Alzheimer's mouse, but it's not present in the control normal mouse. And it's also not present in the Alzheimer's mouse that received light therapy for an hour a day. So just blinking lights rescued neurons from dying. It's crazy. Um, and I mentioned epilepsy as a disease folks are studying this phenomenon in, and there are numerous studies showing that brainwave sinking stimuli, particularly of an auditory nature, could reduce the number and frequency of seizures in epilepsy patients. So one such study came out last year from the Epilepsy and Cognition, or ECOG, lab at Dartmouth. 
They previously saw positive effects from playing that 40 hertz sound that you just heard for epilepsy patients, but the only problem was, like you, the patients did not enjoy it. They were <laughs> like, can we listen to anything else, please? Um, so in hopes of finding a more pleasant sonic experience with the same therapeutic effects, the researchers turned to Mozart! <laughs> somebody somebody no. got into Taylor <laughs> or Swift. Maybe not yet. <laughs> Very much the Mozart of our age. Mozart's <laughs> a lefty. It was on the slide. Hi. <laughs> yes, there we go. Perfect. <laughs> Man. It's true. He can't catch a break. <laughs> but to pull the crowd, has anybody here heard of the Mozart effect? Anybody? Hands up. Yes. And all of the early millennials just outed themselves. So yes, the Mozart effect was a really fun romp in pop pseudoscience that happened in the mid-90s. So the idea came from this one study where they played a Mozart piece, the Sonata for Two Pianos in D Major, K448, for some undergrads before they did a spatial reasoning test. The very, and I want to emphasize, very modest results of that study <laughs> appeared in headlines as Mozart makes you, and also your babies for some reason, smarter, <laughs> prompting the creation of Mozart self-help books and mixtapes and headphones sized to fit pregnant bellies, I presume, <laughs> and prompting the governors of Georgia and Tennessee to spend upwards of $100,000 on Mozart CDs for school kids in their states. Turns out they can follow the science and fund public education when it suits them. <laughs> Maybe it's a branding thing. I don't know. Hey. I am making a lot of enemies tonight. <laughs> so this fad, along with inconsistencies in the protocols and tech used in research about K448, the Mozart piece, and epilepsy, left the Mozart effect shrouded in skepticism for a number of years. Until, equipped with a fancier tech, bright young minds, and an eclectic playlist, the ECOG lab revisited it. So here's what they did. They enrolled 16 human participants, all with drug-resistant epilepsy, and played each of them clips from the following playlist. Mozart, K448. Other classical stuff, Wagner, Liszt, yada yada. Uh, Violet Noise. I'm not familiar with yada yada, is that? Yada yada. Uh, Very you have to listen composer. to them. It's truly changed the game. Uh, Violet Noise, uh, which is like a high-pitched frequency that increases with time. Uh, K448, but with some frequencies filtered out. And then three songs from the participants' preferred genre, with or without some lower frequencies artificially <coughs> boosted. So the purpose of all these options, along with the filtering and the boosting, was to pinpoint exactly what musical features produced the Mozart effect, and to see whether the, the effect was actually unique to Mozart K448. So as participants listened to the music, the researchers measured how frequently they experienced IEDs, which are these unique spikes that appear in EEGs of epilepsy patients. Um, and the idea was that a potentially therapeutic song would reduce the number of EEDs, IEDs, excuse me. Um, so to briefly examine the preferred genre thing a little further, so the options were country, heavy metal, and rock and roll, which like, okay, fine. But one of the two heavy metal songs was Nickelback, which seems squarely at odds with their goal of finding enjoyable music. You know, like, you know they omitted that from the grant proposal. But <laughs> they don't even show data collected during the Nickelback song. Here it is. Yeah. 
thank you. You're all very kind. <laughs> I mean, if they're really looking for music people like, why not include Africa by Toto? <laughs> That's right. I follow the assignment. <laughs> Secret. Secret assignment. Secret. <laughs> if you say so. So, here's what they learned. At least 30 seconds of listening to the original unfiltered Mozart K448 reduced IEDs by two-thirds in participants. Wow. Cool. Literally everything else did bupkis. <laughs> <laughs> Mozart won all other popular music since the 18th century, but especially Nickelback, zero. <laughs> so what gives? <laughs> What's so special about K448? Well, the researchers analyzed the musical features of K448, like harmonies and timbre, and they divided the piece into segments based on these features. So the boundaries between segments uh, are the points where the music shifts or changes direction. And that's shown in this image here, which is admittedly like way too high level for me to totally understand. <laughs> um, but it shows how the segments appear across the sound frequency spectrum. So you see these kind of clear sort of edges, like in that kind of pink gradient, that demarcates the boundaries between the segments. Uh, so to kind of look at this a little more myself, I picked a boundary that they identified, and I figured out where it happens in the sheet music. And sure enough, there's definitely a musical shift. So the green box over uh, the boundary matches the green box in the sheet music. And you can clearly see that just by looking at the notes, one melody ends, and then you have the boundary, and then another completely different melody begins. And the researchers noticed that whenever participants heard one of these boundaries, their frontal lobes started cranking out lots of theta brain waves. And from prior studies, we know the same kind of brain activity happens when we feel a positive emotional response to music and when we are confronted with sudden changes in music and things like volume, tempo, or key changes. And in both situations, we also pay more attention to the music. So the hypothesis is that when we listen to Mozart K448, it sounds nice to us. It makes us happy. <laughs> so we listen to it more closely, and then it catches us by surprise and defies our expectations. So we listen to it even more closely. And all of that translates to this heightened activity in our brains that might be therapeutic for patients with epilepsy. So there are still, of course, lots of questions to be answered, and we're a ways away from being prescribed playlists or light shows. But in light, huh. <laughs> Not even intentional. <laughs> Laugh at my own jokes. Um, <laughs> of all the ways that music already helps us uh, to connect, to cope, to express ourselves, it's kind of amazing to think that someday it might even help us tune up our brains. Mm. Uh -huh. <laughs> now, so hold, thank you, thank you, thank you, but hold your applause because <laughs> our amazing pianists, Rose McCatherine and Ryan Breckmacher uh, will now grace us with an excerpt from Sonata for Two Pianos in D Major, K448. And I encourage you to please feel free to groove along with your brain waves as you listen, <laughs> but also feel equally free to clap and cheer and holler like they did in Mozart's day, by the way. This mm -hmm. stiff, like proper listening to music silently. No, 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 no. Get rowdy. That's how <laughs> it's supposed to be. Um, and it's warranted, as mentioned, the Sonata rips, so. Hell yeah. Woo!
keep it going for our incredible musical accompaniments. All right, the moment we've all been waiting for, the trivia answers. So, which one of the following statements about chicken intelligence is not true? A, chickens can recognize more human faces than humans can. B, this chicken social structure is called the pecking order. C, chickens are able to, are able to do basic arithmetic. Or D, roosters will pretend to find food so that a hen will approach. What did y'all put? A is not true. That is correct. A is not true. That would be insane. <laughs> <laughs> Who put that? Did someone put that? Okay. <laughs> that would be ridiculous. Could they count the number of faces that they can recognize? Good question. They can do arithmetic, uh, basically addition and subtraction with numbers up to five. So uh, it turns out the number of human faces they can recognize was like, like 700, which is still pretty fucking impressive. What? But humans were like thousands. So it was, yeah. Anyway, question still two. Good. <laughs> 700. What part of the brain is named after a mythological creature in Greek and Roman okay. mythology with an equine head and a piscine tail? We guessed hippocampus. Noah. Of course you did, because the answer is hippocampus. <laughs> yeah. Um, everybody knows about the hippocampus, right? Uh, hippocampus basically comes from the Greek uh, for horse and sea monster, with hippocampus respectively, sometimes depicted drawing Poseidon's chariot. In the brain, this is a very important area for like learning and memory. Uh, it's one of the most you know, famous areas of the brain. Who, who's heard of the hippocampus? Give it up for the hippocampus. <laughs> Question three. The human enteric, and by enteric that means gut, nervous system, has roughly the same number of neurons as there are in the whole brain of A, a mouse, B, a rat, C, a cat, or D, a horse? Well, our guts told us <laughs> that the answer was C, cat. That is correct. Your gut is very, very smart to tell you that. Your gut has about 500 million neurons, which is sort of on the order of the number of neurons in a cat's whole brain. Question four. In The Wizard of Oz, when the wizard awards Scarecrow a diploma, what mathematical theorem does Scarecrow misquote? Luckily, The Wizard of Oz is my favorite movie. <laughs> I did not integrate it into the theme tonight. It just <laughs> happened. And it's the Pythagorean theorem. That is absolutely right. <laughs> when the wizard, it's, uh, when Scarecrow's like, oh, I'm so sad, I don't have a brain, the wizard says, I think it's something like, uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, basically it's like, uh, I, where I come from, which was, I, it was basically, the, you know, like United States, it's like there were, there were people who had no more brains than you, and yet what they had that you don't is a degree or a diploma. And so he writes out him, uh, I think it was like a degree in like uh, intellectuality, it's some, something like that. Uh, and then as soon as he's handed it, uh, the scarecrow says, the sum of the square roots of any two sides of an isosceles triangle is equal to the square root of the remaining side, which is wrong. Um, but in fact, just in case anyone's keeping score, which we are, the, the real Pythagorean theorem is the sum of the squares of the legs of a right triangle is equal to the square of the hypotenuse. Question five. Yeah. <laughs> how, how nutritious is a zombie's diet anyway? About how many calories are there in an average human brain? A little more than what you need in a day, 2,500. Yes, that is correct. <laughs> C, 2,500. <Yum. laughs> That's just true. Delicious. There is a paper that was like, Let's figure out how many calories it would be in all the organs. It's fascinating. Um, 
and gross. Um, question six. While two-day-old chicks love chicken neuroscience here, um, <laughs> I actually I really, really do because it's one of like the really like classic neuroscience uh, model animals, and one of the people who like, along with Rita Levi Montalcini, very, very famous, extraordinary neuroscientist, who worked uh, on chickens with a person named Victor Hamburger. <laughs> and two-day-old chicks know that objects removed from view still exist, but humans don't until about six months. What is this ability called? Object permanence. That is correct. <laughs> Question seven. When glia were first discovered in the 19th century, they were called nervenkit, a German word meaning what? That would be nerve glue. That is correct. That is correct. Nerve glue. They originally thought that glia were the stuff that sort of like stuck everything together. Glia also, so nervenkit is just basically German for like nerve putty, but it was sort of meant like nerve glue. Uh, and glia comes from the Greek word that means essentially glue. Um, so that's, that's interesting. Um, <laughs> question that's eight. Nice. That's a thing. Final question for tonight. Aristotle believed that the heart was the seat of sensation and thought and that the brain played only a support role. What did Aristotle believe the brain did to help the heart? So he thought that it was a radiator that cooled the blood. That is exactly right. The brain cools down the heart. That's what Aristotle thought was like the whole purpose of the brain. He thought cognition and stuff happened here. But you shouldn't think that this was like something a lot of people thought. In fact, a lot of people before, during, and after, like immediately after Aristotle's like preeminence were like, this is wrong. This is just absolutely wrong. <laughs> but I do want to, right before we finish the trivia, I want to tell you that, uh, yes, radiator is also exactly the word that was in uh, the <laughs> all the stuff that I Googled what? about this. So he has incredible. the PhD, so that's he right. knows these things. That I deserve it. That's it. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> You know how, like, at the thesis defense, when, like, they kick everyone else out? Is that where they tell you what Aristotle thought? That's where they tell you what <laughs> okay. Aristotle thought. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. right. Don't tell anyone, though. Okay, yeah. They'll take my PhD uh, Live stream away. watchers all around the world, please close your eyes. And ears. <laughs> Every, just close all your holes. Um, <laughs> fuck. <laughs> I do want to read you something Aristotle wrote uh, in two things. Aristotle, in, from, from the parts of animals, of course, the brain is not responsible for any of the sensations at all. <laughs> the correct view that the seat and source of sensation is the region of the heart, and then in a different uh, treatise, uh, it says, from Sense and Sensibilia, the brain is the moistest and coldest of all the body parts. <laughs> so that is the trivia. Let's find out how our team did. Uh, we already did. They got a perfect score. Carried by our neuroscientists. Absolutely. Absolutely. Hard to believe. But like the lungs, <laughs> I supported them. You sure did. Thank you. I just want to, before we get to the top scores, I just want to say that uh, here at Fax Machine, there's no team who came in last place. There's only the team that learned the most. The fax machine way. So please celebrate learning with me for the team, the Nerve Children. <laughs> Thank you very much, Nerve Children, for playing, and I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you've learned a lot tonight. That's that's what we're all about. <laughs> Sorry. Um, so uh, in third place, tied, we have There Is No Triangle <laughs> and Flavortown. 
Uh, this is great energy. This is exactly what I want to hear when I tell someone they're in third place. That's, that's when you know you're having a great trivia. Uh, we have a two-way tie for second place with Ooh. seven out of eight. A stroke of Genius. <laughs> and the Heidelberger. Nice. <laughs> um, this might be a conflict of interest. Uh, with a perfect score, Rose and Ryan are pianists. <laughs> Look, they can play trivia and the piano. Man. You gotta give it up. Thank you all uh, for coming out to celebrate Brain Awareness Week. I hope you will uh, uh, check out. Let uh, me check out all the amazing other neuroscience events this week uh, that uh, Brainy, that's B-R-A-I-N-Y for New York, are putting on over the next week. It's going to be a whole lot of fun. Uh, and if you enjoyed the show, we'll be back here actually Saturday, May 28th for a marine biology show with shark scientist Jada Elcock and squid scientist Dr. Diana Lee, PhD. Woo woo. There can only ever be one doctor. <laughs> and the show is called C's Get Degrees. Wait, but isn't Robin that one? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, finally, if you want to learn more about the awesome stuff our guests are doing, you can follow them at Leslie Seibner and at Deep Fried Devin on Twitter. <laughs> Love her hands <laughs> And if you want to learn more about our show, you can follow us at Fax Machine Pod. Or if you'd like to follow us individually, you can find me at Arcs and Sciences, M. Underscore E.M. Costa. And Rob at Sweater Vest SCI. <laughs> um, so, you know, the question oh. remains, how do you end a show like this? <laughs> we want, you know, we want an audience to leave on a high note, you know, something special. And we probably want to do something so vulnerable. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so unironic. So heartbreakingly earnest <laughs> that you can't help but stand and cheer. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> so uh, I'd like to ask Ryan to join me on stage one last time. Yeah. Ryan Breckmacher. I'm so glad I study neuro, a discipline most thorough. Cognition will explain how did it that. <laughs> and my heart would be aching while my bones are busy breaking if I didn't have the brain. My half smile just belies and my stomach's butterflies. Oh, how can I explain? There it is. <laughs> the way my I'd be drinking if about lungs I was thinking. Thank God I have the brain. Okay, you know what? That's it. Stop the music. What? Stop the music. Thank you. Thank you. What? Noah. What? This whole show. I just, you know, I can't, I can't keep it to myself anymore. I can't do it. Okay, right? Let's all agree. The spleen is garbage. Gross. We're on the same page with that one, right? <laughs> the spleen is but, garbage, yes. But, but the lungs, Noah, the lungs. When you disparage the lungs, <laughs> it just it knocks the wind out of me, you know? Come on. Look. Thank you. Em, I'm sorry. I didn't... I didn't realize I was hurting your feelings, and th to be honest, I don't really know anything about any other organs. No neuroscientists do. <laughs> Re really, guys? Really? <laughs> How does studying the lungs make you feel? Well, if oh. you really want to know. Oh, she's singing.
should aspire to see. And the brain needs lungs for thinking. Without air, we'd be sinking. Our songs would go unsung. Maybe we'll collaborate, and then we both can graduate. So how's about we get along? Hey, you know what? I like the sound of that. We both can graduate now that we can get along. Thank you all so much for coming out tonight. We couldn't do it without you. Please keep it going for Ryan Breckmacher. Please, Rose, will you join us on stage? Keep it going for Rose McCatherine. Thank you so much to Caveat to the Bar and also, most of all, to our guests, Leslie Seibner and Dr. Devin Collins. Thank you so much. Thank you for coming. We will see you at the bar. Hang out with us, please.